people assume that they can't come to RUF because they haven't been before, or this is their roommate's thing, or uh, this is only for like really, really super spiritual people. And uh, what I want to do this semester is week after week present to you a number of different categories to illustrate that RUF is really for everyone. So whether you buy your pit gear at the highest price from Pit Stop, or you buy this sun-faded, wind-whipped, sewage-smelling infested stuff on the corner outside Pit Stop. You know it smells funny, right? Right down that corner. Yeah, RUF's for you. Uh, whether you're one of those sick people who find the six degree weather earlier this week refreshing, or you turn into a bear, i.e. you eat one meal or less a day and hide away in your den and uh, stay under your covers and only come out when you have to, RUF is for you. And as it regards the topic of the semester, dating, romance, and all that stuff, whether you get your dating and romance ideas and ideals from The Bachelor, or Jane Austen, or even professional wrestling, uh, RUF, you should watch at least one episode. There's always like some weird romantic triangle in a chair that someone gets hit with. Um, RUF is for you. So what I'm saying is uh, we're a group that takes the Bible and Jesus very seriously, but we want to be a place where you can come, whether you're convinced that Christianity is true or unconvinced, confused about what Christianity is or deeply cynical and skeptical, we think RUF is a safe place for you and we're glad you're here. So this semester we're doing a series on relationships. And uh, last week I announced that the subtitle for this series was Relating, Dating, and Mating. And I got some uh, somewhat negative feedback from some people that that was just creepy. So I, uh, I went back and looked, and surprise, somehow my subconscious must have realized before I published the materials that that was creepy. And uh, in fact, that's not the subtitle for the series. Uh, it's not. It never was. That was the subtitle last time I did the series five years ago. Uh, no, actually, the subtitle for this series is instead Being Loved, Loving Others, and Making Love. <laughs> is that better? Better? Yeah. Okay, all right. Um, so, seriously, that is what we're working away at this semester. God's design and desire for our relationships. Uh, in general, as sons and daughters, as friends, as neighbors, uh, but also dating and marriage and, and all the good, hard, fun stuff that comes with it. Um, so we'll eventually get there. Right now we're very early in the text, sort of establishing the foundations. And last week we studied the first couple chapters of Genesis, which lay out a pretty, I think, convincing portrait uh, telling us why we have all these expectations that things should be great. We have the first couple put in a perfect place, given the ideal job, and our section ended with a wedding. Uh, with a wedding, basically, for, of two people made for each other, uh, naked and unashamed, knowing one another well, unabashed and joyful. That's a pretty good way to wind things up. And I think that explains, deep down, our desire to know and be known, 
and uh, to want to love others because God made us that way. The question then is what happened? What's wrong? Or to, to put it in more colloquial terms of the day, why all the drama? Why is it so hard? Why is every relationship difficult? So I'm going to read the next chapter, chapter 3. You can follow along up there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the gar- of, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. To return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man's become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. A great Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would be kind tonight uh, at the midst, at the end of a busy day and near the end of a busy week in our tiredness, sharpen our minds and soften our hearts and show us your glory and your goodness. Show us 
those things in the person of the Lord Jesus, I ask. It's His name we ask it. Amen. Excuse me, I'm going to move this. I don't think it picks up sound best from my navel. <laughs> could be wrong. Yeah. I have a very long torso. It's not working. That's probably better. Better? Doesn't matter. Okay. So, um, I don't know about you, but I went to bed at 9 o'clock last night. Anybody else? Didn't think so. So, I don't usually go to bed at 9 o'clock. What's happened is I have four children. They've begun to conspire carefully against me to kill me by keeping me up late, getting me up early, and waking me all up in between at different times. And even though I went to bed at 9 last night, this happens often. My 8-month-old, who sleeps in our room, he woke up and started crying probably about one minute after I went to bed. I did not wake him up. Um, and then he woke up again at 3, and I wasn't able to go back till 5, and then it was time for me to get up at like 6.30. Um, I was thinking about this today, and it reminded me of this little sketch that the comedian Jim Gaffigan uh, has given, in which he says this, Babies are amazing. Actually, they're magical. Uh, frankly, they're the worst roommates ever. This is all Jim Gaffigan. I've stolen it. It's natural because it's my life. Uh, they're the worst roommates ever. If you ever had a roommate that did any of the things babies do, you would kick them out. Just you know, imagine the dialogue. Hey man, you were hitting the bottle pretty heavy last night. And then you started screaming for no reason. And I came over to see what was wrong and you threw up all over me. <laughs> and then you passed out and wet yourself. <laughs> and I went to get you some new clothes and when I came back, you were all over my wife. <laughs> yeah, that's my life. And... Um, <laughs> pretty much what it's like to have an infant in your room every night and um, he's right babies are amazing but I was thinking about this in light of the fact that I love my son I've lost all objectivity he's brilliant he's beautiful he's strong he's amazing you know what he also is he's difficult I, I just sort of came to the conclusion yesterday that I have a number of people that I'm really responsible for and that all these relationships involve, involve effort and difficulty and, and drama. No matter how much I love the person, there's always inevitably difficulty in drama. Um, any, well, I was going to say any drama majors, and then I remembered it's Pitt. Never mind. But really, in the history of like drama, there's only like two genres of drama. There's really only two kinds of drama. There are tragedies, and there are comedies. Okay? And for the most part, in our search for happiness and fulfillment, especially in the context of relationships, we all think that we are writing, directing, producing, and starring in our own story, and we're writing a comedy. There's going to be lots of happy endings. But this story started off better than any other, and it's a tragedy, right? And why do we think we get to be immune from its effects? In fact, I think if we're real, we look at our lives, our relationships, and the world around us, we have every reason to expect some disappointment, difficulty, drama. And already, I mean, just by virtue of the fact that you're a student at the university and that you've lived here, you've experienced relational drama. Uh, why? Why is it this way? And can we do anything about it? And in our text tonight, I think we're going to see a couple of things that help us understand 
the difficulty, the drama, the frustration, selfishness, and shame. Then we're going to talk a little bit more about the frustration. Okay, so to set this scene, as I did before a little bit, you have at the end of chapter two this wonderful wedding. The perfect man and the perfect woman come together, and it's amazing. There's poetry, and then like we're not quite sure what happens, but we're pretty sure like they're describing all the good stuff that's supposed to happen in marriage. They're naked, not ashamed. It's wonderful. They know one another in the way that you're supposed to know each other when you're a husband and wife. That's both sexual and non-sexual. And it's wonderful. Um, And then you turn the page and everything seems to go bad in a second. How is that? What happens? Well, God established the relationship in chapters 1 and 2 conditional upon basically one rule. He gave them a good place to live and a job and one another and basically, he's like, I'll live here with you, and we'll live together in a wonderful relationship. I just need you to not do this one thing. That was it. It was pretty generous. You get this whole world and a great job and this wonderful garden to live in each other, and I'll be here with you as your father. It'll be wonderful. Just don't do this one thing. If that seems unreasonable to you, I don't know what kind of relationship you're actually looking for. No responsibility at all. That's actually called college. Um, but uh, not quite, but close. Um, this is a wonderful relationship. But here, in the very next chapter, we see this dark, evil power, for lack of a better word or description, in the serpent working to undo this all. And he's attacking God's authority. That's a word that we don't like sometimes, authority. Like, we want to attack it ourselves. And, and you see, sort of see a, uh, a, the first frontal assault on the authority in verse 4 of chapter 3. This dark power, the serpent, says in chapter 3, verse 4, You will not surely die. He's talking about what God said. Like, you know, it's a, God says, I say. That's a, that's a really strong accusation. He's, he's calling God a liar, okay? But that's not actually why the woman takes the bait and falls. Because frankly, she has tons of evidence to the contrary. She's lived with a good God. She's got all these wonderful things around her. How does she come to believe this lie? How does she come to believe this? And I think what you do, if you look, if you, what you'll see if you look carefully, is that uh, the lie works because this dark evil power is getting her to believe a couple things. It's working to foster her discontentment and working to help her forget God's goodness. You see it in the, in the wording of verses 1 and 3 and 5. In verse 1, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? In other words, the serpent paints the worst possible picture to make God look restrictive, miserly, hard-hearted. To, make it, to, to imply that God doesn't have her best interest in mind. Okay? Did God actually say that? No, he didn't say that. He said this, and there's indications here she's already taking the bait in some ways. And then direct contradiction in verse 4, and then in verse 5, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, What the serpent's doing is trying to paint a picture of her of a better reality than the one she has that makes her question God's goodness and all that she's experienced. Trying to make her discontent and trying to distance her from the goodness of God. He does it really well. 
And one of the things he does is he actually makes her forget God's goodness by a little trick. Uh, throughout this text, God is called the Lord God. You may not have noticed that. Like you see it in verse 8 and 9 and 10. That's his name. His name is the Lord God. And the Lord part is actually a very loving word. It's the, it's the name God gives himself when he's in relationship. Like as a father, like the word I would use for this would be like daddy. You know, it's, it's the intimate name. But the dark power uses just God. You know? It's like someone trying to talk to you, trying to get you to do something against someone you love, and they depersonalize it, you know? Instead of using your roommate's name, they just say, you know, that person, that roommate, or trying to get you to like say something bad about your dad. You know your father. You, you mean my daddy? <laughs> no, no. Your father. No, you mean the dad I love? <laughs> you know, that's sort of what's going on here. It's trying to get you to forget God's goodness and be discontent. And it works. She buys it. She eats the fruit. Her husband follows. And uh, what's described next to her, although it really is right in my navel. Um, all the dastardly consequences that uh, I'm incapable of doing this, that follow in the path. Yes. So, so, what's really interesting here, though, is in the midst of doing this, what's happened is she has gone from being a supremely happy person that enjoys her world, her husband and her God, to thinking that she's not as happy as she can be. And she begins to elevate her sense of personal happiness over everything she's had before. That's what this dark power wants her to do. To uh, believe that there's some promise of personal happiness that's greater than anything she can ever get by obeying God and listening to His Word and living in His world. And uh, He's basically telling her, trust what you see. Trust what you want. Do what you want. Which is really just a way of Him saying, trust what I say. See what I want you to. Do what I want you to. Uh, a pastor from Britain who I've been reading recently about a lot of relationship stuff put it this way regarding today. This is what characterizes us since the fall in Garden in Genesis 3. That the great authority we see in the world that we live in today, more than God, more than Congress, more than the President of the United States, more than common sense, more than anything, is your greatest functional authority is, guess what? Your own personal happiness. Generally speaking, on a daily basis, your greatest authority is your own personal short-term happiness. For the most part, that's how you reason. What will make me happy? And for the most part, your parents and your educators are more than willing to let you do that. Uh, This is actually never really been embraced by a society in history. You know, if you take an ethics class, you'll read like, Aristotle's ethics and what is the good and like no one's ever said like being really selfish is good you should do that you should get whatever you want whatever makes you happy you go do it but as a culture we've said yes that's what you should do we've actually believed that you have the right and responsibility the responsibility to do whatever makes you happiest and the phrase that we've that sociologists have coined to to really express this is expressive individualism you're an individual And you have the right to express your desires in any way you want and to do whatever you want that makes you happy and you should never have to apologize for it. That's sort of the current belief system of the day. 
And we're all really influenced by it. Whether you're uh, in the church, outside the church, grew up, you're homeschooled, it doesn't matter. Buy your t-shirt at the pit stop or on the corner. We've all been influenced by this idea that we should be able to do whatever we want, whatever makes us happy, and we shouldn't have to apologize for it. I think this is highly destructive to relationships. But I'm just going to ask it this way. Can people, like you and me, who have given themselves the blank check, the blank check, okay, to do whatever makes us happy, to do whatever makes us happy, even if it hurts other people, can we really be friends? Can we really be married? Can I trust you? Can we really be parents? I mean, think about what you're saying. Can I go through life with you knowing that you have a belief system where inherently you think you can do whatever will make you happy, even if it hurts me, and vice versa? That's what we're trying to buy into. And I I don't think it looks good. And so we've bought into this, we've inherited this selfish nature. We're just as selfish and self-centered as the couple were when they looked and saw. But now I think we've adopted it as a philosophy and said, this is right and good. It's highly dangerous for our relationships. That's just part of the drama. Part of the drama. The second part of the drama is really interesting. It's shame. It's not usually talked about. We don't want to talk about shame. We don't want anyone to feel shame. But it's actually being talked about a lot now because of the research of one person in particular, Benet Brown. I'm not going to talk about her at length. Actually, Callie is probably going to talk about her later in the semester in a breakout session. Um... And what our text does, it doesn't define shame, but it gives us pictures of shame to help us understand what's going on. So if you look through the text, you see in verse 7 and 8, this couple that was in chapter 2 was naked and not ashamed. After they ate the fruit, they realized, I'm naked. And they're horrified by it. And they try to cover themselves. And they go hide in the woods. They're ashamed, and they take to hiding. In other words, they fear exposure. And uh, frankly, I think all of us can identify with that. Whether you came in this door tonight, or sometime you went to church, or maybe just meeting a new group of people, sometimes we walk into places, and the thing in the back of my mind, or their, your mind, might be, I wonder if they're going to find out. Do these people know what I did last Friday? When will they find out what I've been doing with my boyfriend or girlfriend? What will happen if these people know what I do in my free time? And we fear being seen for what we are. And so we hide. Just like Adam and Eve. That's one picture of shame. We try to hide because we're afraid people are going to see us as we are. We also fear exclusion. Uh, As a result of what the couple do, they're evicted. You look at verse 24 the very end of the account, and God drives them out. They have to leave their home. They're exiled. Um, And uh, I think we can identify with that as well. We fear if people find out what we're really like, we'll be left out. We'll be excluded. We'll be outsiders. I uh, was reminded of this song twice today. I wasn't going to use it as an illustration because I'm a big fan of the song and I don't want you to think I'm old. Um, first in a sermon by Matt Howell, 
RUF at University of Tennessee. And then later in a coffee shop, uh, I heard it and I was like, this is just a great song on shame. And so uh, this is a song by Radiohead. Radiohead is a group you probably haven't listened to because you don't like good music. No, um, no, because they've been around for 25 years and um, I was kidding. Don't, let's not do that. I'm sorry. Um, I'm speaking about shame and I just tried to shame you about music. I'm so sorry. Um, but they, uh, their first big release in 1993 was a song called Creep. It's their most well-known song. If that's all you know of them, you should go listen to some other stuff like OK Computer. Um, but uh, the song, I'll just read a few lyrics, goes like this. I wish I was special. You're so blank stuff special. Uh, but I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. I want you to notice. And it goes to the refrain again. I'm a creep. It's really easy for us to look at someone else and say, you've got it together. And I want to know you. And I want to be known. But if you really know me and knew what I was like, maybe no chance. I'd be excluded. I'd be an outsider. Uh, we want to be noticed for all the right reasons, and we're terrified of being noticed for all the wrong reasons. And almost all of us have our own little thing that we maybe grew up with or still carry with. Whatever it was in eighth grade that you were terrified of people finding out, that thing. So for me, it was that I grew up, I didn't grow up poor, but I grew up poorer than my peers. So I was often ashamed of my clothes and my appearance. I just didn't have nice things. Uh, if you struggled with weight during your life, you know what I'm talking about. You probably have wondered and struggled against people's expectations of the perfect body type. If you've ever rushed a sorority and thought about the possibility of a whole group of people you want to be a part of saying, no, we don't want you. Or if you've ever tried to ask some why out, like, like, I really want to spend time with you. And they're like, no, I'd rather spend time alone. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the prospect of being excluded, left out, rejected is terrifying. We don't want the shame. So we fear exposure, we fear exclusion. And lastly, the, the third way we hide, um, it's not very mature, but we do it all the time. We point the finger at others. You have this perfect couple in verses 12, well, in chapter 2, that love one another. And in verses 12 and 13, when God comes to them and says, What happened? Adam's first words are, The woman. See that? The first words, The woman. Then it, then it gets worse. The woman that you gave me. Adam blames two people, not himself. He blames his wife and he blames his God. And then uh, God turns to Eve and her first words are, uh, uh, the serpent. Like, we're always, we're, shame is so unbearable for us that we can't possibly wear it. So we'll put it on somebody else, even people that we love. We just can't bear it. So we'll shift the weight and the blame to someone else because we can't take it. And so we hide and uh, we fear exclusion and we finger point because we cannot bear the shame. We're Here's the problem. We're wired for intimacy. We want to be known. We really want to be known and loved. But we're so afraid that people really knew us that they would reject us. It's going to make it really hard, right? To really get known. To really be known and to really be loved. Uh, I have a small three-year-old daughter who's into everything. She's a, she's a rascal. She's wonderful. But uh, at least once or twice a day, we find her under the kitchen table. That's where she hides when she's doing something wrong. Like, I don't need to know 
exactly what she's doing. If she's under the table, she's doing something wrong. That's where she goes and hides in her shame. She's, we're just wired that way. We're more sophisticated. I've not yet seen you guys hiding under the table, but I am convinced you hide. Because we all do. We all hide, and we all have our own versions of the like silly, not very effective leaves sewn together that obscure our, our shame. And for some of you, it's busyness. I mean, I don't doubt that you're legitimately busy. But some of you, you're busy subconsciously because if you slowed down, you might actually have to think about all of the brokenness in your life and people might actually get to know you. For some of you, it's your social acceptability. You're working really hard defending with all the cool people because you're deeply insecure that you're weird and that you're not loved or not pretty or not likable. But if they validate me, it's good, right? If they like me, I'm okay. For some people, it could be your hyper-spirituality. That's your, that's your loincloth. And this can all be very subconscious. I think I went into college not aware of any of this. And I would have to say after like three plus years of college, the hyper-spirituality thing was my thing because I was weird. I went to like four campus ministries like all the time and like three different churches throughout college because I was looking for different things. And, uh, and there's lots of reasons why I did that. But I think one of the reasons was so no one could really get to know me. We all have our ways of hiding. What's yours? How do you hide? You've had like a good 10, 15 years of practice now. You're probably pretty good at it. Um, is it shame, friends, is part of the drama? Selfishness and shame are part of the drama. We want to be known. We want to be loved. We're wired for it. But we're so, so shame-soaked. We so fear rejection that we hide and we posture and we work hard to manage our image to the world. And that's just part of the daily drama of life. It's exhausting. And at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you may still ask yourself, despite all your efforts, does anyone actually know me and really love me? Despite all your efforts to manage your image and put it out there just right, to hide all the bad things, you still may not know whether people really love the real you, right? That's the drama. I want to sum it all up in a couple words. One big word, frustration. Frustration. I'll do this in two or three minutes. We have wonderful lovers in this great relationship in chapter two. What we have now at the end of chapter three are frustrated lovers. Frustrated lovers. Uh, God tells the woman in uh, verse 16, your marital relationship is going to be frustrating to you. Childbirth is going to be frustrating to you. Even the, like, the, good, the best things that come out of your love, like you know, sex and what happens when you have sex, a baby, even that's going to be frustrated. It's going to be hard. It doesn't mean it's not still good. It just means it's not ultimately what it's supposed to be. And you will wonder what's wrong. And uh, part of the way that God designed the good world was that the relationships that we have with God and one another and our work vocation would come together wonderfully and nothing gets free. So the two things, in other words, that you're here working on really hard, what are you supposed to do for a living? Your work, your vocation, your sense of purpose, and who you're supposed to be with, they're both frustrated. God turns to the man and says, all your work, all your labors, toil, exhausting toil. You'll work and be exhausted to the day you die.
doesn't mean it's not good. It doesn't mean work's not good, but it means it's ultimately frustrating. So again, the two things that you're here working very hard at to figure out what you're supposed to do for your life, your work, your vocation, your sense of purpose, and who are you supposed to be with, God's telling us here in Genesis 3, none of them, neither one of them, will be as good as you hope. They may still be good, but they will ultimately be frustrated because we live in a world where selfishness and shame are part of the reality. Um, I have this great story and I don't have enough time to tell it. Some other time. If you bribe me, I'll tell you some other time. Um, some of you may be thinking this right now. At the end of uh, this little thing, you may be thinking two things. Uh, one, Derek, I'm the exception to what you just said. I get it. I get what you're saying, that I'm selfish, and yeah, I'm not as generous as I should be. And maybe what you're saying about shame is true, but I'm, ex- I'm, I'm the exception. It will work out for me. I will get what I want. I will get the fairy tale ending, and it'll all be great. I hope you're right. But I am convinced that life in this world will deliver us wonderful stories in which you wake up to the next, the most wonderful, beautiful person and get a dream job doing exactly what you want every Thursday night. And you get four beautiful kids. And they're all lovely and smart and, uh, and tanned. And, um, and you know what? That every single bit of it is still shot through with, with frustration. Because it's not what it's supposed to be. Because you don't love them the way you're supposed to. Because they don't love you the way they're supposed to. Because people are disobedient. Because people are selfish. It's just sort of the way it is. And uh, you may think you're the exception because, well, frankly, you're an American and we all think we're exceptional. But in God's world, shame and selfishness is a reality. And we just carry it with us. That's one thing you may be thinking. The other thing you might be thinking right now is... Derek, I hate you. <laughs> and I get that. I really do. I had a great conversation with Catherine earlier in the week where we were talking about the balance between being brutally honest about the way things are and being hopeful. And what we've just done is be brutally honest about the way things are. And I want you to be brutally honest with yourself and with God and maybe one or two trusted others about all the stuff that you are afraid to tell people about. But I do want to leave you with hope. Because if you read chapter 3 of Genesis and you don't come away sobered, then you miss something. And if you read chapter 3 of Genesis and you don't come away hopeful, you've also missed something. Um, no one really comes out of Genesis 3 unscathed. The serpent, the God, God himself, loses his people in a sense. Uh, Adam and Eve. But there's one character we haven't talked about who's mentioned in chapter 3 verse 15. Um, it's got a really awkward name. His name is Offspring. Um, it's perhaps not a character. But God is alluding to the fact that Adam and Eve, their life's not over, which is amazing because God said they were going to die. And God here is telling them, you have a future. You're going to have a family. And the Bible picks up on this theme, and actually the rest of the, much of the Old Testament follows this. And the question is, who is this person? Who are we waiting for? This champion that's going to come and crush the evil one and make things right. And this text gives us some really important clues. I'm just going to hit them really quickly. That gives us real hope. First, uh, this conqueror, like God, probably is going to be someone that seeks us. 
uh, think about what this couple did. This couple who lived in a great relationship with God cheated on him. Okay, He created them, gave them the best thing ever, a wonderful place to live, a great job, one another, and they cheated on him. They committed treason. Okay, God gave them one commandment. They broke it and said, we'd rather do whatever we want instead of doing the one thing you don't want us to do. Um, it, it was terrible and ugly. And despite the fact, God comes looking for them. God knows what they did. And yet he, text describes, walks in the garden and calls out to them. God goes and looks for them. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God seeking out his people. Looking for them. Calling out to them. That's what Jesus does. He says, I'm the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost. He searches. He seeks. He draws near. And, and then we have another picture here as well of, of what this person might be like that gives us hope. We find it again in verse 15 that this one that uh, is going to crush the head of the serpent, it's going to cost him something. I don't exactly know what a bruised heel is. You know? You'll crush his head. You'll, you'll, you'll win. You'll destroy that thing. But it's going to hurt you. What we know is that this one who's supposed to come, it's going to win, but he's going to suffer. He's going to suffer. So that's another picture we have. And the third picture we have in verse 21. God's about to send them out of the garden into the cold, hard world. And uh, they're going out there in like leaves, fig leaves, um, not knowing how to do anything. And God provides for them, um, it says in verse 21, skins and clothe them. Where did they come from, these skins? I don't think he had a wardrobe in the garden. Just reached in like, can't find your size. <laughs> oh, large skin for you. No, um, I think what we're supposed to understand here is that God had to go kill something. You see, the promise that God gave to Adam and Eve was, if you break my law, you will die. And they didn't die. And I think one of the reasons they didn't die is because God said, I will let a substitute take your place. This animal is going to die in your place. And for a, a thousand years or more, that's the system. That God let some substitute take the place until the ultimate substitute would come. That would cover them. God provides a substitute that dies in the place of Adam and Eve and He covers them with that substitute. And that's a picture we have of Jesus. A substitute, the final one who dies the death we deserve and covers us, forgiving us and giving us his good record. It's pretty amazing uh, when you think about it, all that uh, this little chapter in chapter 3 gives us to, to really uh, hang our hopes on. Uh, you know, Jesus not only covers us, lastly, he takes the blame. So, you know, wonderfully, Jesus comes as a substitute and at the end of his life, He's put on a cross. People are gambling for his clothes. What I means where are his clothes? Well, they're not on them. Why? Because he's naked. He's naked on a cross in front of a mocking crowd. What we fear most, being naked, ashamed, and mocked, Jesus suffers that for us. Um, we fear being excluded. Jesus, at the end of his life, is abandoned by all of his friends and followers. And on the cross, he says, My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, for our sake, is excluded by everyone. He becomes the ultimate outsider so we can be on the inside of God's family. 
And uh, we're afraid of taking the blame, so we pass it on to others. And when God comes to give account of his people and says, you and you, why did you do this? What are you going to do about the fact that you've broken my laws, you don't love me, you don't love others? And, and like the scrub on the basketball court trying to keep the, the best player from getting a foul, Jesus raises his hand and said, I, I did it. He takes the blame. He takes the finger himself. It was me. And he, and he bears the blame on himself. Here's the two questions. How can you honestly, how can you, how can you be honest about your selfishness and your shame and still have hope? And the answer is Jesus. You can be honest about your selfishness and your shame because you have in Jesus a God who knows you perfectly and yet draws near to you and takes your place and takes your shame and is excluded for you in order to bring you into the family, to cover you and to bring you back to the Father. That's great news. And I have another question. This is the last question of the night. In the middle of chapter 3, Jesus draws near to this couple. He knows where they are. He knows what they're doing. He knows what they're like. He knows what's happened. And yet he asks them a question. He asks them, and uh, I think it's verse 10 or so, probably earlier. Where are you? See that? He asks them, where are you? Well, I want to ask you that question. Where are you? Are you working hard every day to hide? Are you carefully managing your image to the world? Working hard to make life work? Trying to somehow get back to the way things always were in the garden? Friends, you're never going to get back there. What we want is all God's things without God. But we have a God who wants to bring us back in. And He does it through Jesus. Alright, I'm going to pray.